Dick Turpin grew out of this myth or fed into the myth, the narrative that was being created, because there were penny dreadfuls coming out in the 1830s, decades after Dick Turpin was finally hanged, that romanticised his view, it romanticised his story. And even when I was a child, there were great sort of pictures of Dick Turpin's ride to York, this 200-mile dash to York. They never tell you that the reason he rode to York was he had murdered a, a man called Matthew King in a bar brawl in 1735. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and together with James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we are heading and it is often violent and generally quite bloody. When I was a child, my parents took me to the Mermaid Theatre in London. We watched a swashbuckling play about Dick Turpin, a highwayman, which culminated in an epic pursuit from London to York on horseback. Turpin is portrayed as a romantic figure, a gentleman of the road, a cut above your everyday robber or footpad. He was, of course, a common horse thief and was executed at York on the 7th of April 1739 by hanging, in those days achieved by the short-drop strangulation method. Today we're going to talk about highwaymen, pirates of the land, whose high point of operation in England was between the restoration of Charles II, 1660, and the death of Queen Anne in 1714. So, Jamie, who are these road agents, these knights of the road, these highwaymen? I want to take you back to the Bible, Tom, and the tale of the Good Samaritan, because that is a fantastic example of highway robbery, of highwaymen that go back millennia. You can trace these sort of highway robbers from that time to the carjackers of today. And they've been romanticised over the years, but nothing actually changes. It's still highway robbery. All right, so as an example of highwaymen, um, would you say that they were operating between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea in that period? They were certainly operating between urban con conurbations in the same way that London highwaymen were operating on the fringes of London. And if you look at my fave book, The Count of Monte Cristo, there you have this bandit, Luigi Vampa, robbing people outside the gates of Rome and hiding in the catacombs on the Via Appia. You know, this is what happened. As soon as you got urban clusters, you got robbers on the outskirts. And so on that 15 and a half mile stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho, you had traders, merchants, you had rich nobles, you had people going to winter in Jericho because of the rainfall in Jerusalem. Jer Jerusalem, of course, was above sea level, whereas Jericho was below sea level. And if you go along that stretch, you find that it suddenly becomes desert very, very quickly. And so you got vast tracts of space in which robbers could hide. And again, you saw that in highwaymen in Europe, that they could 
operate around the approaches to cities and towns and then disappear into the hinterland. And so when you come to the biblical lands, the Bible lands and Jericho, exactly the same was going on. And St. Jerome, of course, came up with this concept of the ascension of blood, that somehow it was blood spattered because of the robbing and the murders along that route. It was probably because of the sort of pink or red coloured rocks in various parts of that track. But it still added to the legend in the same way that there are so many layers of legend around highwaymen that continue to this day. Yes, and you get other examples if we go across to somewhere like China. China was bedeviled, beset by highwaymen and highway robberies, even as late as the, the, the sort of 15th century AD. You get Ming emperors complaining of epidemic and endemic banditry going on, that the imperial grain stores at Tongzhu outside Beijing couldn't actually deliver any grain to the city because of the amount of robberies, because of the number of robbers on that route. So where you got long distances, where you got people travelling unescorted, where there weren't troops positioned, you always got robbers, outlaws in the outlying areas. And uh, they had some interesting uh, nom de guerre. Yes, they were called the Whistling Arrow Bandits because they put whistles on their arrows. In fact, you saw this later on in medieval Europe that that archers would put uh, whistles, sirens, like Stuka bombers, (laughs) on their arrows. And bells on their horses. And bells on their horses because it, it spread terror. And once you got this terror ingrained in people's imagination and consciousness, then they knew they were in trouble. There was always this fear of banditry, of highwaymen, and that continued, of course, into the 18th and 19th century in Europe. It reminds me of the more recent advice I read somewhere when if you were in out in the um, wilderness in America and you had to take care about bears... And there was uh, the advice was that you should carry pepper spray with you, and you know if you came across a bear and tr- tried to get, get get to grips with you, you should squirt in the face with pepper spray. But also, you should sew little bells to your clothes so that when you go through the undergrowth, <laughs> you're tinkling, and the bell the bear would hear you and it would scurry off. Um, and they said the last thing that you should do is you should recognise your bear spore. And brown bear spore is kind of uh, brown and leafy and smells not very pleasant, whereas grizzly bear spore is brown, unpleasant smelling, smells of pepper and has little bells in it. (laughs) So if you see me on all fours, that's what I'm doing. As I've always said, Jamie, I'm the one pushing you forward saying, here, here here, Lutembe, you can have him. It's my white stick trying to search out. Yes, I strap on my my running shoes. But I saw saw bear advice, which was because you have to treat a a grizzly differently to a brown bear because one can chase you up a tree, one can't, one you can play dead with, the other, if you do that too, they'll start eating you. You're never going to remember. Yeah, well, exactly. You can throw a punch at one, but the other will take your arm off. <laughs> and you're doomed, frankly. You are. But and if you've got a whistling arrow coming towards you, you know you're dead. Exactly. So there's nothing to do. Yeah. 
But I mean, this highwayman, you, you look at, talking of long distances, I mean, you look at the Silk Route, of course, that started sort of second century BC and went on for centuries after that. You, you got all these routes, you know, peppered with forts and trading posts. And again, approaching those trading posts, you had the threat of robbery. And that was a key problem. You know, this is why you got camel trains better and better armed, better protected, just like naval convoys at sea. You know, you had to guard these extremely expensive commodities, this merchandise, from robbers coming down from the mountains. I mean, if you're going on a long route past the Gobi Desert, past the Himalayas, you know they're going to be robbers in the area. And does that mean that the authorities realise they can't just sit on their hands, but they actually have to come up with some kind of policing? I think that certainly happened later on in the same way you got policing at sea. I mean, given that Silk Route wound its way to Constantinople, so you had all the problem of highwaymen, highway robbers through that route. And then once you get on board ships, you then have the problems of pirates out at sea throughout the Mediterranean and the Aegean. So so all around the place, the, the more remote the area, the more likely you are and actually, there, uh, I mean, there is a bit of a connection between the sea and highway routes because you don't have a specific person necessarily in charge of either the sea or a highway because it tends to link different areas that are managed by people. That's why the, the robbers on those areas, can, they can slip between the cracks because nobody quite knows whose job it is to go around arresting these people and, and defending these these routes. And you've got warlordism, localism, civil wars. If you don't have a sort of strong centre, you're never going to be able to control any of these routes. A lot of it goes on trust, a lot of it goes on tribalism and clans, and that breeds a, a culture of extortion, protection, and highway robbery. And then south of the Silk Route, we have India, Jamie. What's going on there? Yes, another vast territory, largely lawless in places, and again, broken up between different regions, different Maharajas, different rulers. And so often there was war as well and conflict, and that bred this cult, this robbery cult called the Thuggies, from which, of course, we get the word thug. And they again, like highwaymen later on, acquired this sort of level of legend and this sort of mystical character because there was a religious dimension. They would consider themselves descendants of the goddess Kali, goddess of murder and mayhem. But of course, a third of them were Muslim. So they were essentially a repository for outlaws and bandits and other kinds of uh, crooks. But they created around. a sort of cult around them to give the, them uh, better, yes. improved sort of bona fides. Yes, and, and not just uh, a sort of religious mystique. They also gave themselves nominally military titles and ranks. So it was quite ordered in places, and it became a sort of really paramilitary organisation. But what was different was their sort of method of operating. I mean, they, they used different devices. They, they essentially uh, befriended people, uh, merchants, pilgrims, travellers, 
cozied up to them and they often poison them with Datura, the hallucinogenic drug uh, that sent them to sleep or made them hallucinate. Datura is devil's weed or moonflower, it has many names. And that was widely available. And there were other narcotics as well. And they quite possibly took it themselves as well, because it is a sort of recreational drug. It's just like the assassins and hashish, just Mm. like so many other drugs that we mentioned in our uh, Narco Warriors podcast you know whether it that was, was the one that got us banned from facebook wasn't it? <laughs> my large picture of a cannabis plant yes yes some yes. algorithm did for us and it wasn't even in your greenhouse yeah <laughs> i'm very happy not to be on facebook <laughs> so so drugs like detura played their part and then there was this ritual murder but garroting uh using a silk handkerchief quite often or some kind of ligature to strangle the victims and steal. And so many merchants carried money on them. That's how you did commerce. That's how you conducted your business. So they were ripe for the taking, really. And the thuggies were always there to do it. Yeah, there seems to have been a lot of ritualistic violence. There was a lot of ritualistic violence. And uh, again, if you add this layer of religiosity and religious fervour, it, it allows for a level of brutality that, that really disguises the fact that these people were often just simple road, roadway psychopaths. So whether it was putting people's eyes out after strangling, or th- th- there was also talk of human sacrifice and religious ceremonies. So they carried not just their silk handkerchiefs, but also their ornate kator daggers, their, their knuckle daggers, and it sort of reminds me of the Serb cutter, you know, those those knives, those agricultural knives that the killers, the guards, those Croatian guards carried and used against their prisoners at Jasenovac prison during the Second World War, the, yeah. the camp. So wherever you get violence, you're going to attract violent people. And Carly made me do it. Exactly, and that is that is one of their excuses. That, that, that giving it a religious dimension or a quasi-military dimension always helps. And then it was a Brit who came along and sorted the situation out, General Sir William Henry Sleeman. And dinosaur hunter as well, of course. Oh, that was my line. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, it's all right. We'll we'll go on to it. It's good. It's good. You brought it up. The old sauropod. (laughs) Titanosaurus indicus. He was a multi-talented individual. He was a polymath of his era. He discovered that while he was hunting down the thuggies. That's right. But he was a clever man. I mean, what he did, which was so different to the usual British way of of running empire, he had a very good intelligence network and he was very good at turning uh, thuggies and getting them to show him where the mass graves were, getting them to uh, essentially uh, give the game away on, on other thuggies, on other groups of other people within that thuggy group in that particular area. And he started this massive campaign to suppress the thuggies and did very well with it. It was an extraordinary campaign, very ferocious. And he managed to defeat them, both through intelligence and through armed conflict. Yeah, I think by about 1870, which was actually after he died, um, the thuggies were all but removed, destroyed. 
but but he started it and again it was this move away from things being run by the east india company towards having the the british government the british state more involved the 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 regular army involved in the suppression of thuggies so it became more militarized the campaign and better funded better coordinated and, and the intelligence was coming in yeah excellent well done william sneeman he was also a, a part character in one of Barbara Cartland's novels called The Terror in the Sun. Lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would yeah. you think he was wearing pink He's as well? He's probably pulling his hair out, <laughs> sitting on his cloud, thinking, oh, I was in that damn book. Yes, but, but I think this idea of intelligence-led campaigns and of having police forces, this was all coming in at the time. And it helped both in suppressing the, the highwaymen at home and highwaymen abroad. And the thuggies were on the receiving end of that. And even surprisingly in Australia in the 19th century, there were highwaymen. Oh, the bush rangers were around from the 18th century onwards and, and didn't really die out until the late 19th century. So uh, across that region, again, vast tracts of land and bush from which these people could operate. So you've got the notorious Captain Thunderbolt. Captain <laughs> Thunderbolt. I knew there'd be a song in there somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a theme tune. Captain Scarlet, one of my favourites. <laughs> but, but Fred Ward was notorious, and he, he never actually killed anyone, but he, he was emblematic of this outlaw theme that was going on. He, he had escaped from uh, a penitentiary or, or penal colony on, on Cockatoo Island, had got into the outback and spent many years essentially rustling cattle and horses, even stealing racehorses, and managing to escape on some you know, pretty, good, pretty good horses, out evading the pursuers. That was his edge, was it? That was his edge. And he was obviously heavily armed. He often worked with accomplices. Some were shot, some were captured. Uh, he, he'd break up with that lot and then move on and set up another gang. But he, he got his name because, again, he was mentioned in the press. And it's so often the press, whether it's in Britain or elsewhere, that creates this legend. And we'll come on to it later on about the penny dreadfuls and the romanticising of highwaymen and this happened in Australia as well so you got someone like Ward Captain Thunderbolt getting this name because a, a, a postmaster that he held up claimed that the door opening was like Thunderbolt and that was taken by the press and they ran with it and Captain Thunderbolt was eventually bushwhacked apparently he was pissed so he was he was pretty drunk he was cornered. He had been shot earlier in the knee, a fortnight earlier. So he was probably walking with a bad limp. He could certainly be identified. And the net closed in on him. And so there was a gunfight and he tried to get away and was killed. And that was so often the, the, the end game for so many highwaymen, uh, outlaws, outback robbers. But because there were not just a lot of convicts escaping into the outback, into the hinterland. There was the discovery of gold. And so it was the discovery of gold and these 
cattle farms setting up in all manner of places. Certainly around New South Wales was a centre for bushranger activity. You got them drawn to these centres, drawn to these areas where there were coaches heading back into town, carrying gold, carrying money, uh, carrying riches. And so it, it attracted these outlaws, these bush rangers, these highwaymen, like, like flies to jam. All right, now let's come on to England and the time of highwaymen in, which is between, as we said, 1660, King Charles II comes back on the throne and the death of Queen Anne. Where do we start, Jimmy? Well, that was certainly the high watermark of the, what we traditionally call the highwaymen. And once again, it was like the bush rangers in Australia or the thuggies in India. It, it often occurred around urban conurbations, the approaches. So if you look at the, the Great North Road into London or the Bath Road or the Dover Road, it was... Heathland around those roads where highwaymen tended to congregate and they operated a system either of holding up the stagecoaches, the postal coaches or running a sort of protection racket for travellers who were going alone and this is how it developed and so you got Hounslow Heath or Finchley Common or Bagshot Heath, all these areas were key locations for highwaymen and the legend spread from that. Why was there um, no policing? I mean, who did the policing at this time in along the highways? There were local constables, but that was the problem. They hung around towns and villages. They didn't tend to travel along roads, certainly not at night. And it was the spread of roads, the spread of carriage traffic that really encouraged the growth of the highwaymen and the ability, the chance of the highwaymen to escape into the hinterland, just as they did in other parts of the world. But I suppose, I don't know if this is the case, but we had, um, in times of peace anyway, smaller armies, didn't we? We didn't have a lot of soldiers milling about who could be co-opted into policing action. Um, well, and one of, on and, well, and one of the problems was that once the war finished, you then got a lot of sailors or a lot of soldiers who were unemployed, who didn't have skills, who weren't needed. They might have been wounded. They certainly had martial skills. They could fire a pistol. They could ride. They could do many of the things. They could wield a sword. Uh, they could fight with a rapier or with a sabre. And so you had a ready body of men, not to be co-opted into a militia of any kind, but who would disappear and become street robbers. So that was one of the problems. And there are stories of robbers holding people up and finding they'd served in the same regiment. So <laughs> this was always going to happen. Did you get off if you'd served in the same regiment or you were <laughs> shot even quicker? Yeah. <laughs> It depends You're, how you yeah. get on. I never liked that, Colonel. <laughs> <laughs> but but once more, you, you see the legend grow. Just the term stand and deliver. You saw that in court documents. Stand and deliver up your purse or your money and your life. This became a regular thing. 
this became the sort of terminology that was always going to be employed by highwaymen. It wasn't just a, an English thing. You got this in France. It's no coincidence that the first person to be guillotined in France in 1792 was a highwayman. So this happened all round Europe. I don't know what the German highwayman would say. Stand und deliver. Actually, you I, know what I, you do know what they would say. I, don't you? I, well, well, I think the Germans probably would have said something like "Geld ober Leben." gold or your life, gold or life, uh, which which sounds quite good when a German says it, <laughs> rather than me. I think all, more, the, more convincing. all our many German listeners will be rolling their eyes. But we, we, we have this concept, this, this image of the, the noble highwayman, the, the, the highwayman with lace at his throat, with pistols in his belt. Exactly. Where did that come from? Again, it grew out of the penny dreadfuls and was then taken up later on. Uh, you know, there's that famous Neuperm of 1906 that, that became standard for every schoolboy to learn. So we have this romance and it's about a highwayman, it's about his lover, it's about riding up to the old inn door and a final stand, a last stand. The following is an extract from The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes. Tlot, tlot in the frosty silence, tlot, tlot in the echoing night. Nearer he came and nearer, her face was like a light. Her eyes grew wide for a moment, she drew one last deep breath. Then her finger moved in the moonlight, her musket shattered the moonlight. Shattered her breast in the moonlight and warned him with her death. He turned, he spurred to the west. He did not know who stood, bowed with her head o'er the musket, drenched with her own blood. Not till the dawn he heard it, and his face grew grey to hear how Bess, the landlord's daughter, the landlord's black-eyed daughter, had watched for her love in the moonlight and died in the darkness there. Back he spurred like a madman, shrieking a curse to the sky, with the white road smoking behind him and his rapier brandished high. Blood red were his spurs in the golden noon, wine red was his velvet coat, when they shot him down on the highway, down like a dog on the highway. And he lay in his blood on the highway with a bunch of lace at his throat. And still of a winter's night, they say, when the wind is in the trees, when the moon is a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas, when the road is a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor, a highwayman comes riding, riding, riding. A highwayman comes riding up to the old inn door. Over the cobbles he clatters and clangs in the dark inn yard. He taps with his whip on the shutters, but all is locked and barred. He whistles a tune to the window, and who should be waiting there but the landlord's black-eyed daughter? Bess, the landlord's daughter, plaiting a dark red love knot into her long black hair. So this sort of outlaw culture, this romance, became quite widespread, and but, you can see it in the, in the legends of individual highwaymen later on. OK, but the romance of highwaymen came after, came later. 
well, it wasn't you, at the time. It, it was at the time as well, because people liked to read a good yarn, and some of them became quite famous. The fact that Dick Turpin was was romanticised in, in fiction, even at the time, and, and others too, and we'll get on to them. But the notion of the wicked lady, that was concurrent with the stories of other highwaymen. So even though there weren't really women as highwaymen, it, it, it entered folklore. And once it enters folklore like Robin Hood, it, it, it gains a hold. So we've talked about the high point, uh, the time when highwaymen were most effectively operating in England. What brought about their decline? The lack of roaming, really. And also, maybe, society was becoming more civilised. It's probably no coincidence that the last sort of highway robbery happened between sort of 1815, 1830, that sort of period. And it's exactly the same moment that duelling was declining, that it, it just be, it, it sort of fell out of use. But there are many other reasons. Partly, first of all, there was an arms race that highwaymen didn't know whether they would be shot and you certainly didn't want to be wounded and you certainly didn't want to be wounded if you were living out in the bush, if you like, if you were living out in the countryside. Or gangrene and Yes, so there, was, there, was, there was no recourse to any sort of surgery. So you were in trouble. And you, you got the appearance of the blunderbuss on the stagecoaches. You had people armed with pepperbox pistols, multi-barreled pistols. And you didn't have to be a good shot if you just fired these things towards where the voice was coming from you had a pretty good chance of hitting something or someone. And if you were up against, if as a lone highwayman, or even if you had accomplice, if you were up against several people in a coach, you had no idea who you were up against. So it became a sort of, not just an arms race, but it became a sort of a fairly bad bet when you were holding up a stagecoach, you know you could be hit by a blunderbuss or you, you could be hit by pistol shots or you were up against people who were pretty good with a rapier. And there were also uh, the highways were organised more and more under Acts of Parliament, who was responsible for looking after them and keeping them. And in, within those acts, responsibility was then dished out to people who had to not only maintain the roads but make sure they were safe. Yes, in 1805, you got mounted constabulary really patrolling the approaches to London. And it's really those approaches to urban conurbations that, that really attracted highway robbers wherever you were in the world. So it, it sort of pushed the robbers further and further out. And once you get the Enclosures Act in the 18th century, late 18th century as well, the 1770s, you couldn't really have highwaymen scarpering that you'd end up on someone's estate. You'd end up trapped in an enclosed area. So you couldn't just have sort of tracts of countryside in which to disappear. Surrounded by the farm manager and the gamekeeper and all of that. 
Yes, with, with, with a sort of local posse after you. So you were going to be in trouble. So all these things were sort of moving against you and you started getting urban sprawl. You started getting the towns spreading out beyond traditional medieval walls. You, you have them reaching out into the countryside and the spread of the middle classes. And I um, suppose people were not carrying around their, their valuables in the same way as they had done in the past and uh, banknotes were more easily traced. and Yes, so you got the spread of banking, so you had IOUs, you had banknotes, you had all these things that went against people carrying gold anymore or valuables. You, you had other ways of transporting things, other ways of, of doing trade, and that really hampered the, the sort of free range, uh, the, the, the ability for the highwaymen to operate. So we can see how the romance has grown from the myth of highwaymen. So we'd better talk about some of the famous highwaymen from this period. Let us start with a Frenchman. Claude Duval. Uh, he was legendary in his day. He apparently came from an aristocratic family in France that lost its wealth, lost its lands and its chateau. So he came over and was a footman at the home of the Duke of Richmond, but strayed into crime and became a highwayman. And his reputation was for good manners and never harming anyone or threatening them particularly. And there's the story of how he wanted to dance with the wife of one of the people he held up, so he only took half the money from the man he held up <laughs> so he could have a dance. And there's probably no truth in it whatsoever. But it just shows that this was late 17th century. It just shows how that fed into the sort of public consciousness. And in the same way that the legend of Dick Turpin was then picked up in the 19th century. And even Oh, though... whoa, hang on a sec. I, I just have to point out here that, that Jamie is being complimentary about a, a Frenchman. That has to... <laughs> That has to go down into the legend of, of, of this podcast. <laughs> There'll be a stab in Please the Please note all our few remaining listeners in uh, France, well, at least in Normandy, where he came from, that Jamie is, is kind of pro, this guy. Well, he probably danced quite well. <laughs> That's probably it. Do you think he had a fine ankle? Do, 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 do you think he ran up a surrender flag halfway through? God, was being you, chased? Now, now you spoilt it. Oh, damn. <laughs> okay, Reverted so Dick, Tur Dick Turpin. Yes, and Dick Turpin, again, grew out of this myth or fed into the myth, the narrative that was being created, because there were penny dreadfuls coming out in the 1830s, decades after... Dick Turpin was finally hanged, that romanticised his view, romanticised his story. And even when I was a child, there were great sort of pictures of Dick Turpin's ride to York, this 200-mile dash to York. They never tell you that the reason he rode to York was he had murdered a, a man called Matthew King in a bar brawl in 1735. And yet in the Look and Learn book that Jamie was studying as a little boy... There's Dick Turpin on Black Bess um, jumping a five-bar gate in his red tunic and 
his black bandana around his eyes, firing a pistol at the authorities who are leaping after him and on their horses. It's all very uh, pretty. And look at that poem, the, the, the Noy poem, the, the highwayman come riding. There's that description of him in his breeches and the lace and the colour of his waistcoat and all of that sort of thing. It, it, it creates this image, this sort of gallant image of the highwayman. And, and much of it was just pure fiction and total fantasy. Well, his, uh, his, in the poem, the, the, the girl shoots herself in the bosom. It's a very telling way of warning, warning him that the authorities are hiding out in her bedroom. And look at Dick Turpin's ride to York. The idea that he got there in 12 hours is absolutely absurd. 200 miles. 200 miles, absolutely absurd. We talked about the, the gunpowder plotters escaping, the ringleaders escaping in 1605, 80 miles north towards Rugby. Uh, they had relays of horses. It's the only way you could have done those sorts of speeds, covered that sort of ground in that kind of time. I think Black Bess was the prototype for Black Beauty. Well, I suspect Black Bess ended up on a meat hook if, if she had been going quite that fast. Oh, no. Yes. Mm. It never ended happily for, for Highwaymen. And Dick Turpin, of course, was hanged at York Castle. But uh, he went up to the gibbet, apparently with a jaunty jaunty step, which... which Brought him some admiring a bit, a shouts bit, a, from the crowd. A, a, a bit, a bit like pirates. They they often cut a dash when they were hanged. It was it was their last hurrah. But w whether it was Claude Duval or Dick Turpin, the, the reality was always less than the than the, the fiction. Absolutely. And over to the west of London, towards Oxfordshire, we have the the Burford Highwaymen, the three brothers called Dunstan. Tom, Dick and Harry. I wonder if they were tunnellers, like the Great Escape. It's, I don't think you should conflate those two. They're a bunch it, of thugs. It's quite ironic that they had those names. But what happened to them was really far closer to the reality of the, the unpleasantness and the ugliness of the whole situation. Uh, the, 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 there was a moment in their lives where they were escaping from robbery and Dick Dunstan got his arm trapped in a door and they had to cut it off and he bled to death so it was his brothers who, who who cut his arm off it was pretty unpleasant and they were then eventually hanged i think they were caught um in a wager for a sack of potatoes and the authorities rounded them up when they were trying to win a, a sack of potatoes <laughs> in a, a pub there was a fight for a sack of potatoes they, they were probably drunk just like our old friend captain thunderbolt in the Australian outback. Oh, there you go, children. If you want a career in highwayman business, you need to stay sober. And don't fight over a sack of potatoes. Yeah, aim your sights higher. Uh, so just to show that we're, we have an even hand in these legends, there the, the were, the were women highwaymen, supposedly. Well, certainly there was the legend of uh, female highwaymen, including Catherine Ferrers. And that became a very strong legend. Uh, the fact that you get movies about the wicked lady, it, it all goes back to Catherine Ferrers, and she was probably completely innocent. There, there, there may well have been female highwomen operating in the approaches to London. I mean, she lived in Hertfordshire. She was married off at 16 to the Fanshawe family who had lost all their money because of the English Civil War. This was 17th century, mid-17th century. There's probably no truth in her being a highway woman. 
and yet this legend has grown and grown and it is stuck and even even the sort of period in which she operated has has seems to have evolved because so many stories about the wicked lady tend to be uh, sort of set in the regency time they keep it fairly opaque fairly movable and so whether there was a female highwayman whether it was the right century all these things seem to seem to shift so it's very difficult to pin down pin down the truth about the story probably just some novelist who wanted to come up with a, a juicy story so they took a couple of details from a hundred years ago and then created the whole thing out of thin air a perfect penny dreadful a story that evolved through the 17th 18th 19th and then finally the 20th centuries so it, it's a it's a powerful story because are your do you do you consider your story your, your novels penny dreadful saint jamie oh thanks tom <laughs> you should read them folks they, they are they're truly penny <laughs> and pretty bloody dreadful no i take that back that's a that's a that's a killer. That's a killer for promoting books. They're wonderful. I like to think so. My mother loves them. Oh, thanks. That's a great boost. That's a boost to my confidence and to sales. <laughs> Good. And I think your mother, has your mother read them? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She loves them too. As have all the family. Been forced to. <laughs> In the same way they listen religiously to this They are podcast. our audience, I think, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but you so so you see this 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 evolution of of because people want adventure, people want excitement, and people want heroines, heroes, and anti-heroes. So you're always going to get that through throughout both fiction and the sort of twisting of reality. Okay, so we are coming to the end now, and as we like to do at this point, I think we should have a postscript, Jamie. And the postscript is set in the relatively modern period. Yes, I think we should go back to Australia, uh, to Bushranger territory, because it just shows how the, the problem with highwaymen and carjackings continues to this day. And this was really the Australian backpacker murderer, Ivan Millet, who is known killed at least seven backpackers in the late 1980s. He was captured in 1993 uh, after the police caught up with their own notes and started doing some research and put him under surveillance. There was a young British tourist who reported that he had been kidnapped and that he had had shots fired at him and reported this. And eventually the police got round to tracking Milat down. And when they found the bodies, uh, a sort of grave with seven bodies in Belanglo State Forest. There were these poor backpackers, the bodies of these backpackers. Some had been tortured. It's believed some had been raped. Uh, the man was a total psychopath. I mean, in prison, he was known to have swallowed razor blades to cut off his finger to try and get his case reviewed. He, he was the most unpleasant bit of work. And, and really, it shines a spotlight on on what kinds of people 
the the these highway robbers, these highwaymen really were and are, because they're nothing more really than 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 thieves, thugs, and psychopaths. Yeah, not so romantic after all. Stand and deliver your money or your life. It turns out there's nothing especially romantic about highwaymen when these words are ringing in your ear. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH, and it really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.